Well, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills Sunday morning Bible study. We meet every Sunday morning online and in person at 10.30 a.m. Our in-person services are outdoors in the field, and uh, we'd love for you to join us. Uh, you bring your favorite lawn chair, beach blanket, sunscreen, some water. We have sunshades up for those who want it or need it. Um, we're outdoors wearing masks, doing all of those things right. Did you know that more Americans believe in life after death than they used to? A few years ago, a study was released that said that 80% of Americans believe in an afterlife or life after death. That's actually up from previous years. A few decades before that, it had been 70 to 73% of Americans believed in life after death. More Americans today believe in heaven or eternity or the afterlife than they used to. Now that is interesting because fewer Americans believe in God. Fewer Americans participate actively in any sort of religious service or program or church activity. Just this last week, Barna, who's one of the leading uh, Christian statisticians, they focus, uh, their, their stats aren't Christian stats, but they do statistical research on the church and on faith issues. And they released a survey that said that one in three church-going Americans stopped going to church in the last few months. Since March, since shutdown, one in three church-going Americans stopped going to church. It doesn't mean that they were in person and then they switched to online because that number is far higher. And I believe that that is being part of a church. If somebody is actively connected and they're, they're connected and watching an online service and they're connected through uh, social media and they're connected through Zoom small groups and they're connected through calling each other or texting each other and choosing to be connected as a church family, I don't think that's not going to church and neither do the folks at Barna. One in three church-going Americans stopped going to church in any way, shape, or form but more Americans than ever before believe in heaven. This morning, like I said, we're going to look at children and rulers. We're going to look at how to enter God's kingdom and what keeps you out of God's kingdom. Turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 13, where it says that people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, and he placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. And as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him, and said, Good teacher. He asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. 
You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is God's word. What must you do? Now, the story doesn't start off with the rich young ruler, and you might think that these are two different stories. Jesus blessing the little children, Jesus talking to this rich man. But Mark links them. These are connected stories. What is it that makes Jesus mad? Jesus is ministering to people, and people are bringing their children for him to bless them. This is where we get the idea of dedicating our children to God. This and other parts of the Bible. Uh, we don't baptize infants. Uh, we don't believe that that's something that is useful or biblical, but we do dedicate children to the Lord, and we see Jesus blessing the little children. But his disciples are telling their parents, hey, take them away. Get them out of here. We don't have time for this. Do you know how important Jesus is? Do you know how busy he is? What makes Jesus mad? Jesus, it says he gets indignant with him, with his disciples, but that's just a polite way of saying Jesus was hacked. He, he, was, he was ticked off. He was angry. What makes him mad? Pride, selfishness, lack of love. Pride. Jesus is too important for you. And, and the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, we don't have time to do crowd control for children. We don't have time to do babysitting. We don't have time to serve in kids' church. We are too important. Pride. Selfishness. Maybe they just wanted to go home. Maybe they just wanted to be done for the day. Maybe they, they knew where the next stop was and they're looking forward to it. You know, oh, there's a great shawarma place in that town or it's right by the lake. We can, we can go for a swim, whatever it is. 
Jesus said, no, this is what matters. Lack of love. There's something, I think, worrisome if you don't care for little children. If you don't have a concern for, for the littlest of us, uh, if, if we don't have a, a heart or an eye for the next generation, I think there's something incredibly troubling. It's something I'm so grateful that this church has a long history of caring for the next generation, of caring about uh, our, our kids and our youth and the, and the next to come up. I'll tell you, it's troubling when they don't. Uh, years ago, I was on staff at a church, and we were doing the big summer kids program, and uh, at the end, there was a big barbecue for all the kids and their families, and the whole point was to meet the, uh, you know, meet the parents and for the kids to have fun, and we've just done this big thing, and at the barbecue, one of the, one of the elders of the church was telling little kids to be quiet, and they're being too loud, and they're having too much fun, and I just looked around like, Really? This is the whole point. This is a kid's event. This is not an adult event. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to last at this church, and I didn't. But if, if, if we don't care about the next generation, there's something troubling. That lack of love to put others before myself, that's what makes Jesus mad. If that's what makes God mad, I want to stay far from it. But then Jesus says, don't you know the kingdom of God is... is is only received by, by ones like these? That if you don't have a, what, what's commonly called a childlike faith. By the way, the phrase childlike faith does not exist anywhere in the Bible. It doesn't matter if you're reading in the King James, the New King James, the NIV, the NLT, the ABC. It doesn't matter what your version or translation of the Bible is. The phrase childlike faith doesn't appear. Jesus says you have to enter the kingdom of God like a child. What does that mean? And there are a lot of different opinions about what a childlike faith or entering like a child or having the faith of a child means. I thought a lot about it this week. Quite often, a lot of the time, when somebody talks about a childlike faith, it's something like from a, like the most sappy, cheesy Hallmark gift card. That, that it's, it's, oh, this is what faith like a child means. And it's like, that sounds weird. That doesn't sound right. What does this mean? Why is Jesus talking about this? I believe this, that when Jesus is talking about entering the kingdom of God and you must do it like a child, I, I believe there's at least three things he's talking about. Simplicity, humble, and full. What is childlike faith? It's simple, it's humble, and it's full. It's simple. Can I tell you that there are plenty of people who overthink faith? They overthink God's love for them. And it's not just academics. It's not just professors of theology that overthink God's love for people. Although I do think that happens. But average, normal, everyday people overthink faith in God. I have to do this. I have to do that. It's a simple thing. I believe that God loves me. And I believe that God loves me so much that he became a man, Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, and that Jesus, when he died on the cross, that paid the penalty that every wrong thing I've ever done deserves. And I believe 
in what Jesus did for me, and I believe in God's love, and because of that love, I believe that my sins are forgiven and that I am welcome in God's kingdom. It's as simple as that. Some people want to overthink it. But you have to be humble to get that simple. It can't be that simple. It can't be so simple. How can, how can something so big and so complex be that easy? Surely I must have some part to play. There must be some great work that I have to do for God to love me. You have to humble yourself to know that there is nothing that we can do for God to love us. He just does. And it's full of faith. It's full of faith. That when we get in the car, my kids don't ask me, I mean, maybe they will now that I'm saying this, but my kids don't ask me, do we have enough gas? Have you checked the tire pressure? My kids just trust that I've taken care of the car. And we drove a lot this last week. And, and my kids just trust that we take care of the car. It's a full faith. It's a simple faith. Just know, I know that my parents love me, and I know that, that they want good for me, and so this is going to be good. When Jesus is saying, have faith like a child, become like a child to enter the kingdom of God, he's saying, in simple humility, fully believe. And then he blesses those children. And as he's getting ready to leave, this is why I know that these two stories are linked. In verse 17, it says, as Jesus started on his way, so he's getting ready to leave where he has been ministering to these families. It says, a man ran up and fell on his knees before him. Mark, who wrote this gospel, purposely links the rich man's story. And you might hear me refer to him as the rich young ruler. This story is, is repeat, recounted in other Gospels, Luke and Matthew. And we're told that he's rich, that he's young, and that he's a ruler. So people commonly refer to him as the rich young ruler. Here, Mark just says that he was a, uh, a rich man. But if you hear me refer to him as the rich young ruler, that's his common name. We aren't told his, his given name. That's just what people refer to him as. But Mark links them together. The story of the children and the story of the rich young ruler are linked in verse 17. What I think Mark is getting at is one of two things. Both could be true. Doesn't matter. Either, either this man totally missed Jesus' teaching because this is out in public, this blessing of the children, his rebuke of his disciples, his public teaching about becoming like a child to enter the kingdom of God. So either this guy came late to the party and he didn't hear the teaching, which by the way, I have found that, that quite often when somebody has an objection or a, a pushback or a problem with the Christian faith, it's because they have a problem with one thing and they have missed the teaching on some other thing that clarifies. Just throwing that out there. But either he missed that or it just went over his head. He thought, this, this teaching about children can't be for me. I have bigger issues. Remember, humility. Either he missed the teaching or he ignored the teaching. Either way, the result is the same. Now, in verse 19, 
Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. Critics of the Christian faith have at times tried to say that Jesus never claimed to be God, that Jesus never said he was divine, that that's a claim that was made by later people, but that Jesus himself never made that claim. Well, Jesus' followers believed he was God in human flesh, and Jesus' enemies believed that's what he was saying. So that when Jesus was on trial before his crucifixion, and, he, and they said, are you the Messiah? And he said, I am. Referencing Moses and the burning bush where God said, I am that I am. And the way that Jesus said it linked to that. And they made, there was no mistake on their part. They understood Jesus was claiming to be divine. Jesus was claiming to be God in human flesh. And here's a, a man who has either missed the teaching or has ignored it. But he comes to Jesus. And even I think he understands that there's a div- at least some sort of divinity around Jesus because they, as I understand it, I'm not a, a, an expert, I'm not a historian, but reading the experts, they would never have addressed even the most respected rabbi or scholar as good teacher, lest they inadvertently blaspheme God, because in their mind, only God was pure and good. But he had some recognition. He had everything. We're going to find out that he's the most moral person, maybe the most moral person of his generation. He was successful. He was rich. He had health and youth and vitality. He had everything. And something was not enough. Can I tell you this? We enter God's kingdom with humble faith. And we need to do it because only Jesus can satisfy our souls. Only Jesus has the answer. Only Jesus will be enough. So the man says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I need to do? And Jesus lists a bunch of things, you know, uh, don't steal, don't murder. Like those are all things that everybody agrees. Yeah, don't do those things. He says, I haven't done any of those things. I've never lied. I haven't committed adultery. You notice that Jesus doesn't challenge him on this. I find that fascinating. Jesus doesn't disagree with him. You may recognize the list that Jesus gives as being part of the Ten Commandments. But they're not all of the Ten Commandments. All of the commandments that Jesus lists are visible outward. Someone would know that person is is a murderer, that person is an adulterer, that person is a thief, that person's a liar, that person disrespects their family. All of those things would have been publicly known. How do you know if somebody doesn't honor God inside their heart? No idolatry, no other gods before me. Those are also part of the Ten Commandments, but you'd never know. You'd never know if someone secretly had a a hidden idol somewhere. Those are internal things. And that's where Jesus challenges him. Here is the most morally upstanding person you can think of, the most successful person you can think of, the person you would want 
to be like. And what is it that Jesus is challenging him on? It's not on his outward things. It's on his inward. He says, one thing you lack, go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. Because he had another God. He had a false idol, and that was his wealth. He could not give up his wealth to follow Jesus. Now, does that mean that wealth is inherently bad? Does that mean that every person, every rich person needs to sell all they own and give it to the poor so that they can enter eternal life? No. In Luke's gospel, we're told the story of Zacchaeus. Maybe you know it. There's a kid's song we used to sing. You know, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Zacchaeus said, Jesus, I am going to, I've been, I've been a crook. I've been dishonest. I'm going to take half of my wealth, and I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to give it to the poor. I'm going to make things right. And Jesus says, today salvation has entered this house, not because of the money, but because of the heart and the repentance. Zacchaeus said, Jesus, I've done wrong, and I am going to make it right. But he only gave 50%. His heart was repentant. Jesus sees this man's heart. I can't see your heart. You can't see my heart. But God sees inside of us, into the inner person, the hidden person. And Jesus sees this man's hidden self, and he sees this idol, this false god of his own wealth and success and position and prominence. And he says, sacrifice that, cast it out, reject it, and come and follow the true and living God. And he will not do it. It says he went away sad because he was very wealthy. Now, when we say rich person, who do you think of? Do you own a car? Did you know that if you own a car, you are one of the 5% most wealthy people in the world? That, almost, that every person hearing my voice likely is one of the elite, richest people in the world. All of us. Just by owning a car. That level of wealth puts you in the top Five percent. So maybe when I said rich man, maybe when I said a wealthy person, you thought of Bill Gates, or you thought of Jeff Bezos, or you thought of uh, Phil Knight, uh, you, you thought of some big titan of industry, you thought of a, a celebrity, uh, a, a sports star, a musician, somebody who has all kinds of wealth. But all of us here are some of the wealthiest people on the planet. When Jesus when the Bible says that he was a man of great wealth, that means abundance. Even the poorest of us live in abundance compared to the rest of the world. I, I read a book several years ago called no Nothing to Envy, and it is about life for the average person inside North Korea. It's a fantastic book. And one of the Ref, uh, the defector, somebody who escaped North Korea and came to South Korea, he was interviewed and he said he knew that the North Korean system was a lie because on the state approved, so this is the heavily censored and edited and uh, cleansed version of 
the truth that, that the propagandist in the North Korean regime put out there to their people. And he said he was watching a news report and it supposedly showed uh, South Korean union workers picketing and, and striking. And so the North Korean propagandists were uh, saying these are the poorest workers in, the, uh, in South Korea and the ruling elite are keeping them down. And here in North Korea, we have none of these problems because we're perfect. And he looked at the images on his TV and he saw how better dressed and fed and free these supposedly oppressed workers were compared to life inside the North Korean dictatorship. And he said, if the poorest person in South Korea has it that good, and he was one of the, in the social elite of North Korea. He said, if the poorest person in South Korea has it that good, then they have it better than I do, and I'm, I'm from an elite family. And that's how Americans are compared to the rest of the world. The, the poorest of us have it better, or the opportunity to have it better, than just about anywhere else in the world. So when you think of a rich person and Jesus says, sell what you have and come and follow me. And you think, well, that's speaking of someone else. No. Speaking to us. Some of you might think, what does this have to do with me? I'm a Christian. I'm already going to heaven. I'll tell you the truth. There are plenty of church-going people who are not going to heaven. There are plenty of church-going people who are not going to heaven. And this has always been the case. In fact, uh, I, I read, uh, as we were camping this last week, I read a brief history of our denomination, and one of the things that struck me was how many of the key early leaders of our denomination were ordained pastors who were not born again. And then they, they got saved. They, they had a, conf, uh, a transforming, a conversion experience. And they just got radically engaged in God's mission. And the established church didn't know what to do with them, so they kind of got kicked out. You could, you could be a, a churchgoer your whole life and not know Jesus. And so to you, I say, Follow Jesus. Cast out whatever your idol is. Maybe money's not your idol. I know people who have more money than I could ever imagine uh, because of, of uh, some places that I have lived and some, and some places I have worked. I have interacted with some of the richest people you could know. And, and they have more money than they know what to do with. And then they just say, here, God, it's all yours. And they, they do with it as God calls them, and, and I don't question that for a minute. Um, and I know people who had very, very average middle-class lives who God has called to give up everything to follow him. So I'm not telling you that, oh, this is time for everybody. This is the, this is the money squeeze, right? Uh, yeah, at our, at our church, we don't make a big deal about money, but it's the week he's going to squeeze. No. Maybe for you, it's not money. Maybe, maybe for you, it's something else. But it, what is the thing that, that keeps us from devoting fully to God? That's the thing to cast out. 
That's the thing to get rid of. And it's different for every person. I have a, a, a very old friend who, who for decades now has been in recovery. He's a, he's a recovered alcoholic. And he can't understand how my brain, I've, I've never been tempted to, I've never, getting drunk has never been a thing. I've never, never gotten drunk. I'm not, don't, not interested. It's not a thing. And his brain is just wired that way. And so for him, casting out all substance was just an absolute must because that was the thing that was bringing him from life to death. What's the thing for, for you? You know, for all of us, it's going to look a little different, but it's the same thing. And you could say, well, I've been a churchgoer my whole life. Here is this rich young ruler who is the most moral person, the most successful person. Nobody would have questioned. He would have been a member of any church. He would have, he would have been a, a, a leader, uh, respected. And here is a guy who Jesus loved. It says Jesus loved him. Jesus wasn't judging him. Jesus wasn't angry at him. But he loved him, and he said, get rid of that idol and follow me. And he wouldn't do it. So, am I saved? How do I know? I know this. I, I have full confidence in my salvation through Jesus. I have full confidence that Jesus has forgiven all my sins. I do not worry about whether I'm going to heaven or not. I do not worry whether or not I will be welcomed in the kingdom of God because I know who Jesus is and, and my relationship to him. But if there came a point in my life, if there came a point in my life where someone was to look and say, it's not about being perfect, but they were to look at my life and say, I don't see Jesus anywhere in your life. Then I don't believe I could have that same assurance that I have right now. It's, it's not about being perfect. You, you have a plant out in your garden and it's, it's doing well and it bears fruit. And, you know, there's, oh, there's this one branch that's not as healthy as it could be. But, but it's bearing fruit. We see it. Versus something that is dead and decayed and it's obviously, it's obviously done. And, and we could look at that plant and say it's in good soil. It's, it's part of a well-tended garden. But we don't see any fruit. We don't see any life in it. I can't have that kind of insurance. There is no one that is beyond God's ability to save. Not you, not your worst enemy, not the person that you pray and hope and believe that God can save them, but it seems like it'll never happen. There's no one who's beyond God's ability to save. The question isn't whether God can save you from your sins. It's not whether God can the question is, do we have the humility to admit our need for salvation? The rich man valued his wealth over his own soul. More Americans believe in eternity than ever before, and increasingly fewer Americans do anything to see that their own soul is ready for eternity. More Americans believe in eternity than ever before, but fewer and fewer Americans are doing anything to build up treasure in heaven. So to the person 
who does not have an assurance of salvation, who, who does not know for sure that God loves them and that they are part of God's kingdom, I say the invitation is there. Turn away from your sin and follow Jesus. And to the person who knows that they are part of God's kingdom, but I don't know if I have any treasure there. I, I might just get in by the skin of my teeth. Today is the day and going forward. You can't control the past, but you can control the future. To surrender our lives to Jesus and to say we can't control what's happened, but we can control moving forward. We can surrender our hearts. Peter said, Lord, we've left everything for you. And that might sound like an arrogant statement, but Jesus doesn't challenge it. Jesus gives a promise. If you abandon this world, if you forsake this world, Jesus says there's blessings in this world and persecution, but in the life to come, in the coming kingdom of God, your reward will be great. How do you get into God's kingdom? Simple, humble, full, childlike faith in Jesus Christ. What keeps you out? It's whatever hidden idol that you cannot let go of whatever false God you will not abandon and reject. But Jesus is doing his work. And there is hope for today, for any and everyone, even for you. And if you want to know that your sins are forgiven, we would love to talk with you about those things. My email is adam at faithonhill.com. We'd, we'd love to encourage you and let you know that you can know peace with God, that you can be part of God's coming kingdom and escape this kingdom of humanity, this world of death and darkness. Jesus loved that rich young ruler. Jesus loves you. God bless you.